Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. to another exciting episode of NucleCast. Of course, I'm your host, as always, Adam Lyler, and today we have with us a very special guest, and that's Pete Newell. Now, he is the CEO of a company called BMNT, and he is a retired Army infantry officer who has taken his, his experience in the Army to focus on innovation and mission acceleration. And as we were talking, I did not know this before, but he was the senior watch officer at the NMCC, the National Military Command Center, who was on duty on 9-11. So he understands nuclear operations as well. Pete, welcome to NuclearCast. Hey, thanks, Adam. So we were talking before the show, and we were, going, we were having this discussion about innovation and mission acceleration. And you said that a lot of people confuse innovation, and, and it sort of becomes a catch-all. Well, can you explain for us, because this is a big topic as we across the, the DOD, nuclear enterprise, DOE, are trying to, you know, build, we're trying to build pits, we're trying to build them faster, we're trying to improve processes, we're trying to replace aging systems and aging, aging warheads, we're try, we, we have just a huge project that's ongoing. So what is innovation and then what is mission acceleration? Yeah, so I'll start with the the challenge and, and why, you know, we look so hard at the definition of innovation and realize that in context with what we're trying to do, innovation is a process, not an output. And I think, you know, having worked with the government for a long time between DOE, um, the intelligence services and DOD, that, that everybody wants to buy innovation, but they really don't know what it is that they're trying to buy. And, and we finally sat down and said, you know, it, it, they're looking for a result. And the pain point that we're trying to solve is the fact that Commercial technologies are being adopted and adapted at a speed that we can't keep up with anymore. And and we are at the point where we're able to create, I'll call them exotic weapon systems, at a speed that we can't keep up with the manufacturing of them. And and the Chinese are building, you know, counters to, to our capabilities at a speed that we can't we don't have a system that's capable of keeping up with anymore. So, so we really looked at, at all the processes, what people are trying to do and said, listen, that don't confuse innovation as a process with a result. What's yeah. the result you're trying to get to? And that led us down the line of, of this thing about mission acceleration. I need to be able to increase the speed at which I accomplish my mission, whatever it is, whatever that cycle speed is. The, and I'll tell you a short story that spending some time with uh, 
Dr. Steve Spear, who's a management professor at Sloan at MIT. And Steve did his PhD work with Toyota back when Toyota was the, you know, the best manufacturing process right. in the world. And Steve tells this story about running around the United States with the chairman of Toyota and how they would show up at a factory and in a typical fashion, you know, the, the chairman shows up and, and all the people are lined up out front and there's a boardroom and there's food and the slides and presentations. And he said the chairman would walk in the front door and keep walking. And he would walk all the way through the factory to the loading docks and he would stand on the loading dock and not talk to anyone for 20 minutes. And just watch what happened at the loading dock. And then he would proceed to walk back into the factory and tell people what was wrong. And, and Steve being flabbergasted, you know, when they looked at him, they said, how are you able to do this? And the chairman looked at him and said, it's a very simple principle. The only thing that matters here is what crosses that loading dock and goes on a truck to be shipped. Everything else inside is just a process. And, and so I take that and look at the innovation and can very confidently look at it and say, it's just a process. There are lots of different ways to do innovation, but at the end of the day, you have to understand what it is you're trying to produce and, and what the mission is at the end and the speed at which you have to answer it. So mission acceleration is the word we've landed on that, that everybody seems to grab and say, yes, that's what I have to do. Now talk to me about the process by which I can do that. Sure. That's innovation. So I, I wonder is, you say it's a process, but is it also a mindset? Well, I, so I call it a social process. Okay. Um, and, and what we're doing, and actually I was corrected by an anthropologist who said, no, it's, it's, it's a cultural process. And <laughs> it's really about anthropology, not sociology. And she very quickly pointed out, because it, it involves policy, it involves rules, it involves law, it involves people, it involves, well, that, that's culture, and quite frankly. Um, innovation really is um, driven by your ability to communicate what a problem is in a manner that excites people to come together to work on that problem and actually solve it at a speed that they didn't used to. And that involves actually being able to change policies and change how you do things and rapidly assemble people. But, but it is social interaction that, that you're trying to achieve. Everything beyond that is just work. So, so mindset, yes, it's a mindset. It's a culture. It's a, uh, it's a social process that, that actually leads to something. So as somebody who's, you know, you, you spent three years at the NNCC, and so you understand the nuclear enterprise and how we operate. And so at a time when we are, you know, we're modernizing every leg of the triad, we're trying to reconstitute pit manufacturing, which isn't going as well as we would like. We're, you know, we have, we're trying to build new facilities at the, at the labs. We're trying to reconstitute industrial capacity that's, you know, largely gone. And we're doing it in what would certainly be the most risk-averse culture across all of DoD. And so as you, you know, part of what you do is to go into organizations in the IC and DoD and across government and say, here's how you do this better and faster. 
So if you take that and offer it to the nuclear enterprise, what, what do you tell the nuclear enterprise, particularly when they're going to naturally say, hey, well, listen, we, we appreciate your desire for us to be faster, but, but we're the, we, we handle nukes. This is different. So, so part of it is, you know, going into an organization and first getting them to recognize what the problem really is and where the problem exists. And so let's, let's take the manufacturing side of it because it's, it's so common across large organizations now. The, the problem is ultimately we don't have the workforce necessary to do the work that we have to do. In, in, the, in the nuclear world, it means because you're really hiring somebody straight out of the school to, to do that kind of work. You're looking for really experienced engineers and, and program managers and, and people like that, which means it's even worse because you're waiting for the cream of the crop and the rest of the industry to boil to the top so you can use them. So, I mean, let's, let's just talk chips. You know, I, I think today the the chip industry in the United States is short um, at least 200,000 workers. And that's before we open uh, a $17 billion manufacturing plant here in Austin or another massive TSMP, uh, TSMC plant in uh, Tucson or Phoenix. So... And then you look at the, you know, the manufacturing industry as a whole and, and say there are millions, millions of open manufacturing jobs in the United States today. And we haven't started really building more facilities, more factories. So, okay, that's a, that's, that's a pain point. It's not the problem. The problem is we don't have a mechanism for recruiting, retaining, um, transitioning uh, workers from, um, other areas of decaying industry into this type of work. Some of it because it's highly technical. Some of it because, um, uh, let's say, um, the automation process is necessary for computer numerical controlled equipment operation. Used to require like 10,000 hours of experience to actually be really good at it. Well, with the use of AI and programming and other things, that, you know, that's come down to like 3,000 hours. So, so there's this conflux of, if you really want to attack the problem, the problem is getting people to move from old industries into new industries and creating a workforce that, that quite frankly, has decayed for years in the United States and, and rebirthing it. Now, you're the nuclear folks. <laughs> What's your role in doing that? And, you know, where do you sit at the table and making it happen? Or are you just a victim of what the rest of the government decides to do or not do? Yeah. So, so for really senior policy folks, you know, there's, there probably ought to be a brutally honest discussion um, between DOE, DOD, um, the Department of Commerce and a few others about what what the national effort is going to be to create the workforce we need to keep us competitive. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I was trying to be innovative myself. And one of the ideas I've had is because if you look at the top 10 college degrees, 
they're all, you know, humanities, social sciences. You pick up studies, uh, blank studies, and but they're not engineering. They're not computer science. They're not the things we need. And so I've wondered if we should have states start implementing a tuition structure where the less the less need there is for a given degree, the higher the tuition is. And the greater the need there is for a degree, the lower the tuition is. And you use, you know, incentive structures to try to help people make better decisions about the kinds of degrees that they want to get such that it helps to meet the, uh, you know, the national need. And then also, you know, what we, what's our, what's our space program that is, you know, pushing kids to want to be astronauts. They all want to be social influencers and they want to be activists and they want to do all these things that don't produce anything, but they don't want to actually do things that we need. You, you know, I, and I would, I kind of the argument a little bit, you know, because I, I teach a, a course called Hacking for Defense at, sure. at Stanford University. And, and that course is taught in, you know, 50, 60 universities, you know, across the United States and the UK and Australia. And I'm always surprised at how many students show up to try to get into that course. In Stanford, arguably, you're, you're talking about, you know, the, the top 1,000 to 1% of the academic minds in the world. And, and every year we have to turn them away because we don't have enough problems and we don't have enough capacity to teach them. So I'll argue that the interest is there, but we're trying we're trying to recruit young people into an education system that teaches the way it has since the 1960s. Yeah. And, and it's not exciting. It's not applicable. The students that take this course, you know, generally look at us and say, the reason I'm here is because it's the only course that I'll take in my career that lets me use everything I ever learned at the university to work on a real problem with real people that gives me real experience, that gets me a real job. So, so I argue you're not wrong. I'm just saying we need to change the excitement of the education process. And it needs to be less about learning and more about gaining experience as part of something. Um, I'd also argue that that below the, the academic career level, we have lost um, the art of the trades. Where there are people that just need to go to trade schools to, to do the work on the machines and the, uh, you know, the robotic systems and, and other things to, to get the things done. There, there's, there's very few. I, I could talk. I'd be careful. Um, submarines. Sure. That have to go in to be rebuilt, have propeller systems that, that need welding done on them. There aren't enough welders in the United States to keep up with the work. Yeah. So, so we have, I mean, there's just all kinds of issues that, that I keep convicted relate to is how are we recruiting people into the defense manufacturing base? Yeah, no, I, and it's a, so one of the things that we're looking at is how to get into, you know, there's a, the cyber innovation center down at, uh, in Bossier, Louisiana has a program. They've developed a curriculum 
cyber curriculum for like elementary school to high school that schools are adopting to teach, you know, coding. And, and I've wondered if we need other programs like that across, because a lot of high schools don't have, they don't teach welding anymore. They don't. And so it's, it's a, you, you bring up a great point in March, there was the, the deterrence summit, which is the DOE's big confab. And all of it was about, it was about uh, manpower and about talent management. Those were sort of their big problems. And for a lot of these big construction projects at Savannah River and some of the other nuclear plants, they couldn't find folks, you know, to electricians, you know, to build, no. the, to put the electrical work in. So you're you're 100 percent right. And it's a to me, it's a well, cultural problem now. You know, we're, we're actually, and I agree with you, we really have got to get down to the high schools. Um, we're having a conversation with the different parts of the DOD manufacturing system. And I say early on, I'm being the T-Sun. We actually built programming for the Advanced Manufacturing Office at DOE that took um, veterans leaving service, connected them with community college that put them into a work-study program connected to uh, Lawrence Livermore um, and, and a bunch of the other Bay Area facilities with the intent on, you know, they would come out and they would spend a summer, um, like two days a week in the classroom learning advanced manufacturing techniques and three days at, at the lab actually working. And it was a great program. Completely filled it. The state of California at the time had a four hundred million dollar workforce development fund, and and they would come to us and said, "We we'll just throw money at it. Just tell us how to do this." The problem was um, nobody was completing the program because they were being hired at the end of the first year by Tesla, by Lockheed Martin, by because that. Those folks were just consuming everybody that came into the course. We had a lot of success. <laughs> I'm a Kansas State University graduate, so I, I can push on you Nebraska folks a little bit. <laughs> we had a lot of success in Kansas because the commander of Fort Riley, Kansas, had close ties to Kansas State University. And we actually were able to go into the state of Kansas and create a degree program in manufacturing at the um, at the two-year, four-year, and the master's degree level. So so today, you can go to the Salina campus uh, at K-State and find soldiers from Fort Riley taking advanced manufacturing courses. They're actually building parts for the aviation brigade and the hospital. It's just one example. So now let's, let's talk about at the high school level. Can we... Can we create programming like there used to be a shop class, an auto mechanic class, but now where's where's the manufacturing class and get them tied into the the National Manufacturing Innovation Institutes that, that we've been standing up for the last 10 years so, so that there's this pipeline of talent at least into the, the courses. And then, as I said, you know, can, can we resign the courses so that they're more rapid and um, turn out, you know, people that can that can function inside uh, bigger companies and still continue to get their certification, education the way they need it. 
whether it's welders, electricians, uh, manufacturing people, or, or whatever else. Well, we're at that time of the show where we have to take a quick break. So we're going to do that. And when we come back, I want to give you, uh, I don't, I've started doing this more than I used to, but I'm going to let you borrow my lamp that has a genie in it to let you make three wishes for the nuclear enterprise to do this better. So think about that for a second during the break. And then when we come back, I want to know what those three wishes are. So you're listening to Nuclecast and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. you're listening to Nuclecast. We're back. We're talking to Pete Newell. And we've been talking about, he is a guru of mission acceleration, innovation, and he helps DOD, the IC, and, and others in government to accelerate the speed of the mission they perform. It's a process. And so we're, I asked you before the break, I've got, I've, you know, handed you my my lamp and, and you've rubbed the lamp and you've made three and you've been given three wishes. So what are, and you want to help the nuclear enterprise. You love the NMCC. It was your, the best assignment you, you had in the army. A lot of people think uh, all that time pound and ground was, was what you loved, but nope, you loved being in the basement of the Pentagon. And so uh, you want to help the nuclear enterprise. What are those three wishes to help us get where we need to go? So, so the first one is about people, and then I'll, I'll pick up where we left off, is one of the challenges of, of innovation and mission acceleration is there is no doctrine for it. So, there, you know, particularly in the nuclear enterprise, there's a lot of doctrine. <laughs> there are a lot of rules and a lot of regulations. Um, no one is writing the regulation for mission acceleration as it applies to the nuclear mission. Sure. No one. Um, and, and without a doctrine, uh, you know, as a former SAMS instructor, you, you know, double PF, yeah. <laughs> how that gets in the way of scaling everything because you have to solve for every letter. So, so without a doctrine that addresses the people and the education and the professionalization of um, people whose you know function is is to understand how to do mission acceleration as a day to day thing. Um, we will we will constantly have to beg and borrow and look for heroes out there who are willing to sacrifice their careers to actually get something done. So the first thing is 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 literally pro doctrine. Write the doctrine for what mission acceleration means to the nuclear um, triad. Because from doctrine will come duty positions, will become professional education, and will come um, career paths that people will will actually glom onto and do. And, and without it, it just it's just not going to happen. So that would be the first one. the 
the second one, I think we, we touched on the manufacturing issue uh, is I don't believe the defense manufacturing base can do today what it did in World War II. And, and from, from a nuclear mission standpoint, I don't care if it's the chips that go into the command and control system, the chips that go into guidance systems or the chips that go into the robot to build the systems. We can't do what we used to. And I think we're seeing some of the strains of that in Ukraine, just building um, ammunition. Um, I, I think that the nuclear system, while it is uh, focused on rather exotic things, need to realize that that the foundation that it sits on is crumbling. And, and they need to take uh, a more active role or be more demanding about fixing the foundation, which is the workforce required to actually build the systems and do the work and generate the engineers and scientists that, that they need and the test facilities. Um, goodness. The third one... Um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, 9-11, I was on duty, and we were in the middle of a nuclear command and control exercise when it happened, which was a good thing. I have intense respect for the work that was done in the 1950s and 1960s to design that system. Um, that said, that system is aging and, and literally, in some cases, starting to fall out of the sky. We need... To, uh, at some point, step away from incremental improvements to a decaying system and decide what the 100-year system we need to build is and start working on the 100-year system. You know, we, we really, uh, we squeezed all the juice out of the B-52 force. And, and we have squeezed a lot of juice out of the the satellite system and early warning systems and radar systems and, and other things. Um, but, but they're designed to defend us from an attack that is radically different today. And in most cases will be inadequate in 20 years. So I, I would, you know, the last one I think is just to take that seriously, have a serious discussion about what the next system is you know, and, and do what we did in the 50s and 60s to, to design it. Yeah, I would, I would see the, the, the nuke world has, has a challenge that the conventional world really doesn't because, you know, nuclear weapons have this, they're wrapped in, you know, morality. People have these very, very strong feelings about them because I've, I've often, you know, we replace the same systems we have. We build a new version of the same thing, regardless of what the strategic environment does. We And we, we never take sort of a, you know, a clean slate look and say, if we're going to start from scratch, what do we need for the future? That's that's not what we do. And it's it's really hard. And one thing, I, I'm not sure how you move beyond all of the morality, ideology that's wrapped up in nuclear weapons to get to the point where you say, hey, what do we actually need for the threat that we face? Because if we want to successfully deter it, and then if deterrence fails, when? What, what, 
you know, how, how do you do that? How do you create that culture or approach? Yeah, I, I think sometimes they have to, to make the discussion much more simple and say, you know, we live in a world that is a very, very dangerous place, particularly when we reach the point where non-state actors um, have access to manufacturing systems and precursors and other things that allow them to build really exotic weapons that can be used to hurt us at a time and place of their choosing. Um, we want to ensure that we have a system first that is resilient, which will allow us to survive something significant. Um, and second, um, put enough fear into people that they would decide that it's just a really bad idea to do that. You can't fake it, which means you really have to build a system that you seriously can employ that will completely overwhelm anybody's ability to attack you and hope that you never have to use it. But, but the fear has to be real. And that's, frankly, and I wish the world were, were a better place, but the reality is there are people out there who seek power um, for, for their own glory and, and who just hate our way of life. So, so it is absolutely necessary that, that we have a response system that is um, robust and capable of doing you know, great harm to anybody at any time. I, I, that's not, I, I don't have a moral problem with that one at all. Yeah. Because we'll end up saving lives in the process of doing it. Um, of course, at the same time, we can talk nuclear power. It's a, we, <laughs> we have a significant energy problem in this country. And, and we have, we have things to solve. And, and, you know, nuclear power has made a lot of advances that, you know, providing small power in, in places where you couldn't used to do it um, lends itself to the resilience of a nation. So as we, you know, we're at that time where we're almost out of time. And I wanted to ask you one final question to end the show. And that is, if, you know, we for the many of the listeners that, you know, there's this, there's ardent opposition with across the disarmament community. And I, I would submit that many of the folks that listen to the show are sort of pro-nuclear, but, you know, if, if we had laser beams or rods from God or something else that could replace nuclear weapons and do the same thing, have the same effect, they'd be happy to do that. But until then, we're stuck with what we've got. So it's, but when you have these difficult conversations where you're trying to accomplish the mission, deter adversaries. And it, it's almost an irrational conversation. How do you bring, you know, sort of a, you know, somebody who's at the table with you and refuses to sort of understand the mission as it is? How do you bring them around to, to the point where they sort of understand the mission you have and can sort of be su supportive of your effort to accomplish a mission, which you know, is beneficial for, for you, for them, for everyone. How do you get change people's minds? Yeah. You know, one of the, 
One of the most beautiful things about the system of innovation, the process that we have built alongside um, Steve Blank and Alex Oshawalder and some of the, the folks who are really champions of the lean movement, is this process of discovery. So, and it's really nothing but scientific method, is, is you create a series of hypotheses about the mission that you have and who it applies to and who the beneficiaries of it are and, and supporter and advocates, you're required to create a series of, of tests. Call it MVP. It's a minimum viable product, but it's not actually a product. It's, it's just enough for you to have a conversation with somebody to understand where they are and to validate or invalidate your hypothesis. The more you do that, the more you turn assumptions into fact and the better your story becomes. And, and, and as we, we tell students and we tell our other people, the most strongest advocate you can build is a former saboteur. Yeah. Is If you can flip a saboteur into an advocate, you have built the most strongest advocate you can. Now, to do that, um, facts trump everything. So that process of discovery, of interviewing lots of people, and, and testing your assumptions and turning them into um, undeniable facts helps you craft a story that people can't argue with. It's also a very compelling story that actually comes to go, okay, I get what you're saying. And I understand the pain point and I understand what my role might be in supporting that or just not getting in the way. You're better able to convert those people into actually working with you or at least not getting in your way. Yeah. Great point. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Pete Hill, thanks for joining us. Adam, thanks for the invite. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's always good to, to have a discussion of, you know, we talk a lot about systems specifically, but then how do we get where we need to go and how do we get there, yeah. you know, faster, which yeah. is speed is one of our big problems. So particularly given how fast yeah. the Chinese, for example, are, are yeah. expanding their arsenal. So. Thanks for joining us to talk about it. I appreciate it. You know, this is hard stuff, so I appreciate the opportunity to do something different. Yeah, and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode of Nuclecast, and we will see you next time. Well, a few afterthoughts, I guess. Pete Newell, uh, interesting, interesting guy, interesting background. And it was a great discussion, you know, as, as somebody who, you know, he's an infantry officer and retired, you know, he's a colonel. And so he had almost 30 years of, of doing our business, our defense business, before he started looking at how do we innovate within the system? How do we have mission acceleration? And so it was interesting to talk through those sort of ideas and to hear his take on how we do this, this better. And so I, I enjoyed the conversation and, you know, workforce, it's like, it's, how do we get to the point? I mean, we have the people in this country, but they're doing other things. So how do we shift and shape the aspirations of America's young people to then get to where we need to be, to be more effective? And Great conversation. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Frumthal. 
follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.